Our scripture reading this morning is from 1 Samuel, chapter 31, verses 1 through 7. Now the Philistines were fighting against Israel, and the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. And the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons, and the Philistines struck down Jonathan and Abinadab and Malkishua, the sons of Saul. The battle pressed hard against Saul, and the archers found him, and he was badly wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor-bearer, Draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. But his armor-bearer would not, for he feared greatly. Therefore Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. And when his armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he fell he also fell upon his sword and died with him. Thus Saul died and his three sons and his armor bearer and all his men on the same day together. And when the men of Israel who were on the other side of the valley and those beyond the Jordan saw that the men of Israel had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead, they abandoned their cities and fled. And the Philistines came and lived in them. Let's pray. Father, um, what a joy it is to come here um, as a family. Um, Father, I pray that we would just worship you. Um, Lord, that this service be about you um, and not about us, Father, that it be the Holy Spirit speaking through Mark um, and not his own words. Um, Father, that we would just could grow closer to you this morning, um, open our hearts, um, and give us a spirit of humbleness. Um, as we, as we learn more about you this morning and worship you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So if you uh, are a regular attender here, this is not a weird um, scripture to be using for the service. You're just kind of used to this. If you're visiting, you're looking at that scripture passage in this chapter, and you're saying, what in the world does that have to do with Jesus? And that's kind of the question that we're trying to ask. When we read through the Bible, it's not just a bunch of great stories that have a moral uh, point to them or a moral rule that you need to follow. Christ actually says himself, all the law and the prophets point to him. Throughout Scripture, it talks about how um, the Old Testament specifically points to the truths that are found in the New Testament, mainly Jesus Christ. So, if it's true that the Old Testament and the law and the prophets actually point us to the Messiah, then in one sense, and I think this is true for every single scripture, uh, pass, passage of scripture, that somehow it is pointing us to the truth of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And so that's why I say for, for those of you who are regular attenders, this isn't weird to them because this is just what we do here. <laughs> we read through a passage, a, a book of the Bible, we go through it, we try to figure out what is it actually saying, what is it actually meaning, and then, and then applying it to, to Christ, and how does this point us to Christ? How does this reveal to us about who God and who Christ is? And then we go from that to, okay, so what does that mean for me? What, is it, what does it mean for me that um, in this passage, what is God trying to teach me about himself? And then how am I supposed to live that out as a believer in Christ? Or if you're not a believer in Christ, then to hear the truth of the gospel and say that the Messiah is the only way to heaven. Jesus is the only way 
to eternal life in heaven. So how does, as I like to, I, I, I did send my tech, a text to my family this morning. We were kind of going back and forth and what the Easter plans are. They all live um, in other states. Uh, and uh, so we're going back and forth. And I said, our scripture passage today is about the decapitation of Saul. Merry, or Merry Christmas, Happy Easter. Like, wait, what? Uh, how is that going to work? And I will be honest with you, when I first started studying this, even two or three weeks ago, people would say, where are you going to take the Easter service? And I said, well, Jesus, of course, um, and the empty tomb. How we get there, I don't know. But I'm not going to manufacture something. We need to look at the verses. We need to look at the chapter and say, what does this actually tell us and teach us about God and about his Messiah, his son, Jesus Christ? So this is not a one-off sermon. So this has been built up over the last, well, how long have we been in First Samuel? Two, uh, 30, 30 Sundays at least. Um, and so, uh, so my hope is that this is being the last chapter in First Samuel. This is all call, coming to a culmination. Saul's life, David's life, the life of Israel. What's God going to do? And one of the main points that we've seen, especially in the last four or five chapters is the truth that's found in Matthew chapter 6, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. After seeking the rule and reign, because that's what it means, the kingdom of God. What is the kingdom of God? It is the rule and reign of God, not only in the world, but in our lives as his people. And so after seeking the rule and reign of God in his life, for an extremely long time, David, you know, King David, soon to be King David, his fear of Saul drives him to take matters into his own hands, and he seeks the protection underneath the hands of his enemies, the Philistines. And only when he hits rock bottom does David come to his senses and find strength in the Lord's promise to make him king of Israel. I know my death, my life is on the line. My men even want to kill me, but I know God is going to be faithful because he made a promise that I would take the throne and I can stand firm on that because no matter what my men try to do, they will never kill me because otherwise God's promises don't come to fruition and that makes God a liar and I know God's not a liar. He's always been faithful. That's David. But we're not talking about David today. We're talking about Saul. Saul is a completely other story. He has one incident in the book of 1 Samuel where he obeys and trusts the Lord, but then over and over and over again, he actually reveals a heart that is disobedient, is self-seeking, and is untrusting of God. He has a lot of chances to turn back to the Lord, but he continues his sinful rebellion against God. And so his death shouldn't be a surprise to us because his actions, surrounded by his enemies, follow the pattern of his life, a predictable end for an unrepentant heart. That is Saul's life in a nutshell. It can be tempting to see Saul's act of falling on his sword as an honorable end to a tragic life, like it's a Greek tragedy. But 1 Samuel never describes Saul as honorable, for one, and not tragic. Tragic kind of seems like 
man, life is just against you. But the reality is, is that Saul made his own life by his own choices when it comes to his relationship with the Lord. And so we should see this act, this final act of Saul through that lens, severely wounded, his sons are dead around him. That means his throne is gone. Like his, his, his family's gone. He's got no heir to the throne. The Philistines are closing in, and Saul finds him in the most difficult circumstances of his life. And like David in the chapter before, everything is falling apart, and there is nothing that he can do in his own power in order to change that situation. He can't suddenly stop and say, okay, hold on, Philistines, wait. Can you give me time to get away? please? No, they're wanting to kill him, and he knows it. Saul does not do what David does. David turns to God in the middle of the worst circumstances of his life up to that point. Saul doesn't strengthen himself in God's promises because Saul doesn't have any such promises. He does what he's always done, God had left him long before this battle due to his refusal to be obedient and reverent and following his commands. And so in the midst of this battle, this is the same Saul that we've seen throughout the book of Samuel. His act of taking his own life is not an act of bravery or honor. It is an act of refusal to turn to the Lord in the midst of severe trials and circumstances. He died as he lived. In 1 Samuel 18, Saul's jealousy drives him to attempt to kill David. And so where does David turn? David writes a psalm during this time, and he says, Deliver me from my enemies, O my God. Protect me from those who rise up against me. Deliver me from those who work evil and save me from bloodthirsty men. David is describing Saul. Because Saul is the one who's trying to kill him. David turns to the Lord in the middle of such horrible circumstances. But even with his life on the line, Saul refuses to cry out to God. And again, this shouldn't be a surprise because that's how Saul lived. He refused to seek the Lord in life. And in the end, he only finds death. And that death was actually a time of rejoicing for Israel's enemies. So let's read verses 8 through 10 in 1 Samuel 31. The next day, the Philistines came to strip the slain. They found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Geboa. So they cut off his head and stripped off his armor and sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to the house of their idols and to the people. They put his armor in the temple of Asheroth, and they fastened his body to the wall of Beth Sham. The actions of the Philistines are nothing new to conquering armies. Back in the day, that's just what they did. It was a display of their power and their strength and the power of their gods over Israel and her God. In 1 Chronicles 10, we're retold this story. 
of Saul's death. And it tells us that they put Saul's armor in the temple of Ashtaroth. That's one of their false, one of their gods. And his severed head in the temple of Dagon, who's one of the higher ups in their gods. And it was a message of power and strength for their gods and of dishonor and weakness to Yahweh, Israel's God. They're sending a message to the world. Our gods are strong. Your God is weak. But defeat and battle doesn't mean that the Lord is done. In fact, it's only part of the plan in order to bless his people. Now, that sounds strange, doesn't it? This is a, this is a, a time of mourning for Israel. They're, they are weak. They are leaderless. Their army has been defeated. Morale is low. And it just looks like God is weak and Israel is impotent. But it's far from the truth because this is all part of God's plan. Because in the midst of the victory, a message is sent to the Philistines by a band of mighty Israelites from the town of Jabesh-Gilead. This is a a message that says to the Philistines, oh, this, this ain't over. You think this is it, but this is not the end. So let's read what these men do, verse 11. But when the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men arose and went that night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bethshan. And they came to Jabesh and burned them there. And they took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree in Jabesh and fasted seven days. It's a simple act, right? Not really. This is not just a simple act. It's a good ending to a good story in order to retrieve Saul's honor. This group of valiant men went into an enemy stronghold by night and stole away the bodies of their king and their princes. Israel is not utterly defeated like the Philistines thought. There's a hint of hope for God's people. Jabesh Gilead remembered what Saul had done. His one act of godly obedience in saving the people of that town from the invading army of the Amorites. Saul came, defeated the Amorites, and saved Jabesh Gilead. And they remember what Saul did. Remember what the king did for us? We need to do something for him. It is dishonorable for their bodies to be left that way without a proper burial. Let's go and get them. And they sneak in by night, steal the bodies away, and they bury them properly. This brave act reveals to the Philistines There is still fight and honor and hope in Israel. They may triumph over Saul and Israel for a day, but the Lord actually rules by the big picture. He does not see one battle. He sees the entire war. Israel is not dead as a nation. God's promises to his people are not suddenly ended because mighty men still exist in Israel. And guess what? The true anointed king, David, is still alive. And he's going to take the throne. The Philistines have won the battle, but Israel in the end will win because they have God on their side. 
And he is always faithful in keeping his promises, always. It just never happens in the way or the time that we expect as God's people. And so generations later, in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, God once again faithfully keeps his promises to and through the anointed king, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Like Saul, Jesus' death was predictable. I mean, it was a surprise to his disciples, but it never should have been. Throughout the Old Testament, it was foretold that the Messiah would lead and save God's people, but also that he would suffer grievously for their sake. In Isaiah 53, this is, this is a, a, a prophecy of the Messiah, and listen to these words. He's describing what is going to happen to this great leader. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities, our sins. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And in the New Testament, Jesus foretold of his, his own death that he would suffer many things at the hands of the Jewish leaders and the chief priests and that they would kill him. There should be no surprise that the Messiah was going to be killed, that he was going to die. Now, unlike Saul, Christ's life was one of perfect obedience. He never once disobeyed or rejected the desires and the will of His Father in heaven. He never once turned away from the Lord in order to follow His own path. In fact, He submitted Himself to the Father and said, not my will, but yours. If this is what needs to happen, God, then do it. Christ, though tempted in every way as we are, is without sin. That's Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. And yet, this perfect Messiah, sinless Messiah, willingly laid down his own life. And the day that Christ died was a day, too, of rejoicing for God's enemies. Saul's death was dishonorable. Christ's death could not be any more honorable. Israel's enemies rejoiced at the death of Saul, thinking it's the end, and so it was with God's enemies. The religious leaders rejoiced that this popular teacher was finally silenced. We don't have to worry about him anymore. It's over. Satan and his minions rejoiced because in their minds, the Son of God was dead. The plan of redemption announced in Genesis 3 was stopped, and God was utterly defeated. There's no way now that he can recover from this. But defeat, again, in one battle, the cross, does not mean that the Lord is finished because Christ's death was just part of his plan to save his people. Satan may have won that one battle, but God will win the war. In Christ's death, the people of God are redeemed from all of their sins, not just the past sins, past, present, and future. Their slates 
are cleaned by Christ's death and His blood on the cross. They are pardoned from all of their guilt and their, for their rebellion against the Lord. And they're brought back from the pit of eternal death. This is what Christ's death on the cross did. It's, yes, it's Easter. We should be celebrating His, and we are, we're going to get there, celebrating His raising from the dead. But you can't separate His death from His life. We have to understand why He had to die and the amazing part of Him raising from the dead. After Saul's death, the men of Jabesh-Gilead provide a hint, a glimpse of hope of salvation for the people of, of Israel, right? But after Christ's death, the fact that three days later after his death, there's not a hint of hope. There's a firm reality of salvation. This is not a hope. Man, I, I hope this works. But it's a firm reality that the people of God are saved from the enemies of sin, death, and Satan. That they no longer have power and control over God's people. In Ephesians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul speaks this way. I'm going to summarize what he says. That we are spiritually dead in our sins unable to know or to love our Creator, that we follow the ways of the world and of Satan, we disobey the Lord, living out of the passions of our flesh, doing what our body desires, carrying out the desires of our mind and our body. We are like Saul. That is who we are. This is our very nature, our very identity We are not people of God, and we despise God, just as Saul did. And the wages of such of life is the wrath of God. It's eternal death and hell away from the loving presence of God for all eternity. That's our reality because of our sin. It defines every human being. It defines you. It defines me. And then if you're a regular attender, what's the greatest word in the Bible? But. It's an awesome word. That is the reality of who we are. We are under the condemnation of God. We are rightly deserving of His wrath for our disobedience against Him because He is a perfectly holy God, demands perfect obedience. And when we look at our own heart and we try to be good, that means we have to be good all the time. We have to be perfect and we cannot be perfect. We just fail. We could be perfect every moment except for one, and guess what? We're not perfect. One little lie, one little outburst of anger, that is not a godly anger. And we fail. What are we to do? And that's where the Bible says, this is the reality of who you are. But, but, There's the Messiah. Christ took upon himself the wrath of God meant for us. By the shedding of his blood, he became the sacrificial lamb. He became the atoning sacrifice to pay the debt of sin that we have before the Father. He lived the perfect life we never could, and he died the death we never could. And by the power of his blood, 
those who confess allegiance to Christ, not just by word, but by deed and thought also. And we believe in their hearts. That means every area of our mind and body are transformed slowly. God reveals sin and we confess it and it's already forgiven, but we need to turn from that sin. When that happens, we are brought to spiritual life. And just as the grave could not hold Christ, so God raises us from spiritual death to life. That's the significance of the grave. If Jesus had died and never rose from the dead, he would be an ordinary man. And his death on the cross would not be enough. Because death would still reign. But he didn't stay in the tomb. I want you to heed my words this morning and heed the words of God. There's a famous passage, John 3.16. I want to read the whole passage though. Well, 16 to 18. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. And whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. In other words, without Christ, without Christ dying and raising from the dead, we are condemned. But with Christ, because He did raise from the dead, we who believe are not condemned. It's, our sins aren't held against us. Our sin does not identify us. It does not say who we are. Do we mess up? Do we sin? Absolutely. And every day as Christians, we need to fight that, but we also need to be reminded that is not who I am. I am a child of God who was saved by the blood of Jesus Christ because He died for my sins. And before God, my slate is clean always. It's never dirty. Because if I could commit one sin that would go against what Christ did, dying and raising from the dead, guess what? Jesus wasn't enough. If I had that one sin that I can do that would remove salvation from me, then Christ's death and resurrection was not enough. But it was enough. It was enough. Saul died and was buried in the ground. Christ died and was raised back to life. And right now and forevermore, he is sitting on his throne in heaven at the right hand of the Father. Christ is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. He is better than Saul. He is better than David. And so seek first his rule and His reign in your life, and you will be saved. If Saul had turned to the Lord long before this battle, turned to the Lord and sought the rule and reign of the Lord in his life, who knows what would have happened. And so it is with us. If we turn 
Because isn't that what David did? He turned to the Lord. And even should our life be taken from us, we will be forever in the presence of our King. Whoever believes in Him will not perish but have everlasting life in heaven in the presence of God. By His blood, those who believed are saved. By His resurrection, we have the firm reality that we too are alive in Christ. And when this body perishes, that I will be forever in eternal life in the presence of our Lord. All of this, the salvation, are not done by our works. It's not done by coming to church. It's not done by being a good person. It, it's never enough. Those are good things. Believe me, I'm a pastor. I'd love to see everybody here every single Sunday morning and more. But that's not what saves. The gospel of Jesus Christ the grace of God is what saves us. And so that's what we celebrate. That's what we celebrate. The tomb is empty, the cross is empty, and He is on His throne in heaven. He is risen, and He's risen indeed, right? He is our God. He is alive. It just happens that this is the Sunday Every three weeks, we do communion. And how perfect it is to have communion. And we remember His death, and we remember His resurrection. You don't have to be a member of this church to come to the table and join us. All we ask is that if you believe, if you are saved, if you are a child of God, you are welcome to join us. We don't have communion, please. We don't do that but also understand that you will be held accountable before God because by coming forward, you are proclaiming to everyone, I am seeking first the kingdom of God in my life. I don't always do it great, but man, I'm seeking that kingdom. I am saved by God. I'm striving to have Him rule and reign over every aspect and every area of my life. And you're proclaiming to all of us who you are, your identity is in Christ. Now, if you can't say that, if you have not put your faith in Christ, then we ask that you refrain. No one's going to look down on you. Nobody's going to point fingers. If they do, come and talk to me. I kind of like that confrontation because it's not right. We just want you to know and understand who Christ really is and believe in Him. So when you are ready, come to the table. Remember the cross is empty. Remember the tomb is empty. Remember what Christ did for us by the shedding of His blood. Grab the cup and grab the bread and come and sit at your seats. And then together as a family, together as brothers and sisters in Christ, we will take communion together as one and give Him the glory for who He is and what He did for us so many years ago. So whenever you're ready, go ahead and make your line in the back, and then we'll take it together.